When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Michael Thiessen here. You are listening to Open Mic. That's me with Michael Thiessen. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness. That means we look at headlines, we look at current issues, and we try to help Christians think through that biblically. And uh, Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. Head over to ChristianWeek.org to uh, look at some updated print materials, some articles. Um, again, we want to introduce you to RockLink, our good friends over at RockLink. Uh, RockLink Investment Partners understand the investment challenges of today, and we trust RockLink. RockLink has been one of our key partners from the beginning, and that is because they see what's going on around the world, and they want you to be able to process your concerns and your thoughts as you get sound uh, investment management advice. So email RockLink at info at RockLink.com or visit them at RockLink.com. That is link with a C. So for everybody who is a regular listener, Deanna is back. We are on part three of protecting pregnancy and breastfeeding. And uh, Deanna, I don't even know if you've noticed, but Matt is our, our producer is actually putting these up as like 6.3. So this is the sixth time you've come on right. and done multiple <laughs> episodes about different issues. So it's not even just part three, it's 6.3, which again, folks, I want to remind you if you're new to the discussion, if some of the things that are going on within the government have, uh, further awakened you. And maybe during the pandemic, you weren't receiving great information. Six times Deanna has come on and helped us walk through really important uh, medical information and research. So Deanna, thanks for coming back on. And as usual, we're going to pass the baton right over to you so you can jump into a slide and start giving us this information. I believe where we left off, you were just saying backstage is we're Starting, I know we definitely ended off with they declared it safe for pregnant women because they told people they didn't watch it very carefully. And then and then we had moved on to another data set. So over to you. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Mike. Um, just that whole idea of safety. Um, you know, traditionally safety meant safety declared after rigorous testing. So you test it very, very, very carefully. And at the end, you declare it safe. 
Um, and the onus for that safety testing was always on pharmaceutical companies. And you can imagine that that's very costly uh, to do rigorous testing. Uh, and so, of course, it would be in the best interest uh, in, in terms of dollars for a company that is um, not liable for their product to minimize safety testing. And if you could get to a point where you could declare safety in the absence of testing, of course, that would be very, very good for business. And I, you know, personally, as I've looked at all of this COVID-19 uh, production, it, it seems as though that's the direction that uh, it has taken, where you have pharmaceutical companies that have partnered with our, our government, the federal government. Uh, there's a whole minister of innovation um, and they have a health and biosector, biosciences economic sector roundtable that's led by industry. Uh, and among their recommendations that they made to the federal government, which were implemented on in the, the fall of 2019, was this idea of being able to expedite treatments uh, for emergencies uh, without the rigorous testing. So what that means is it's a pre-market approval. It's a it's a notice of compliance with conditions is what it used to be called. Uh, I think it was an emergency use authorization through, during COVID. But what that means is they just look at preliminary data, which means they haven't done the full rigorous testing, no, no midterm, no long-term testing, and maybe not even rigorous testing within the short window that they use. And then they push it to market. Um, and so you know, it's, it's authorized by Health Canada as a special authorization, but most Canadians didn't actually realize that the products that they were receiving during COVID hadn't gone through that rigorous safety testing. Um, and of course, with the adults, um, there was two months of safety testing before they went ahead and approved it for mass use. So that's not sufficient for an mRNA therapy, you know, a genetic therapy to be pushed to the market, especially given that the, the context there, as we've discussed, is about 15 years for safety testing for that product. Um, but two months of safe, you know, seven months of careful surveillance, seven days of careful surveillance, that's how closely as they monitored it called active surveillance during the trial, and then two months of follow up and then boom, right to market. So that's, that's not uh, the rigor of safety testing that Canadians deserve. And it certainly isn't sufficient to be able to detect any safety issues and therefore declare it safe based on testing. Um, so we've got this new phenomenon where the government is feeling that it feels authorized to declare safety in the absence of testing. And that's what we have, especially here with um, these pharmaceutical products. And I think What's particularly concerning for me is the population in which now they are pushing these vaccines. So if the adults had a randomized controlled trial with, you know, a few months of testing, now with pregnancy, they don't even have a randomized controlled trial or the randomized controlled trial that they have will look into it, um, was done after they declared it safe for, for women and, and for use. Um, and so, what they're relying on, and, and people probably don't understand this, is a randomized controlled trial. And we'll get into it, actually. Let me just pull up a slide. Okay. Um, so in this schematic, we went over this previously, but what you have is an experimental group, and it's compared to a control group. And that's the really the only way that you can prove that something is safe when you're looking at an experimental group, and then you're looking at a control group, and then you compare the outcomes of both of them. Um, so what we're having right now, and we've talked about this previously, is that um, suddenly for pregnant women, 
which of course is the, the, the group of most concern for safety because um, we have a baby developing in the womb, uh, which we don't understand the impacts that a, a drug or any type of foreign substance might have on that developmental process. We've tended to stay away from anything that's uncertain in terms of safety um, because of the unknown. And of course, we've got the, the background of thalidomide, which caused um, you know, deformities in children. And of course, there's diastral sterile, um, DES, excuse me, that uh, basically caused infertility long-term and also increased the risk of cancer long-term for the babies of the women who took the drug. Um, so we know that uh, pharmaceutical products can have untoward impacts on developing children. And so therefore, we basically stayed away from it. Uh, but interestingly enough, what we have now is a phenomenon where they basically agree that it is unethical or questionably ethical to uh, enroll uh, pregnant women in a pharmaceutical trial, a randomized controlled trial, because you'll be experimenting on the women and the ethical implications of that are unknown and therefore they gen tend not to be included in randomized controlled trials. But in the absence of that, instead of just staying away from those pharmaceutical products, which would have been the precautionary principle, what we see is that they're declared safe. And the CDC in April 23rd basically announced that these shots were safe for women in the absence of randomized controlled trials. So that's a declaration of safety in the absence of testing. So that is a, a, a break from the norm. Um, but of course, it's very much in the pharmaceutical interest if they can declare something to be safe and then move from having the burden of proof on the, the manufacturer to gain access to the market. So they have to prove safety before they gain access to the market. If they can gain access to the market in the absence of randomized controlled trials, then there'll be never any mechanism by which we can prove harm. Uh, and that is, of course, in the best interest of a pharmaceutical company who wants to sell product. Um, or perhaps in the best interest of government who is partnering with pharmaceutical product uh, companies to sell product. So here it is, the New England Journal of Medicine, they basically pointed to this observational trial as proof of safety. Um, but even in the conclusion of this trial, they basically said that follow-up of large numbers of women vaccinated in early pregnancy is necessary to inform maternal pregnancy and infant outcomes. So even in the study that they pointed to, uh, as proof of safety, which was really just one arm of a trial. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial. It was an observational trial where they gave it to women. So they, they actually have no idea whether it's good or bad relative to something else because they didn't have a control arm. But even when they were just looking at this, the authors of this particular trial, which was a, a trial that was insufficient to prove safety, basically said, we don't have enough data to be able to, to claim that this is safe in early pregnancy. And yet the CDC and our health officials in Canada declared it to be safe for women and pushed them to get it. So they're pushing it in the absence of safety. And so we need to be really, really concerned as uh, Canadians when our government feels that it is able to declare something safe in the absence of data. Um, and even in, in, in stark contradiction to what the data is saying, which would be the conclusion of this study that they, they referenced in terms of that declaration of safety. And we should be very, very you know, concerned. Deanna, I, I, Go ahead. 
I really hope that our listeners keep hearing you as you've, as you're repeating this, um, you, you only read out the highlighted portion, but if you, if you read the full conclusion there, preliminary findings did not show obvious safety signals, uh, uh, defining the word obvious becomes a very important, uh, task when, when now you're parsing out that sentence. And then it goes on to say, however, more longitudinal follow-up. And longitudinal is a word that we've all been familiar with. That's what you've been talking about over time, uh, over, mm-hmm. uh, over a long period of time. This is always what we've expected. So I really hope that our listeners are hearing the phraseology that you're using here. These things were declared safe They uh, without... Um, without longitudinal testing. Like it's, it's a phrase that people need to be able to go out and repeat. And if people say, well, how do you know that? And say, go listen to the podcast uh, uh, with all of this data. But to try to keep moving, warning people that they're, because, you know, Deanna, as you speak again, like this is such a shift in the, in the devaluing of humanity. When you think of pregnant women, and their preborn children being tested on one of the most protected sacred um, categories of human we've uh, we have and we have recognized this is this is tectonic shifting like this is this is earthquakes and volcanoes in mm-hmm. medical ethics of shifts okay yeah. go for it keep going i just wanted to i i'm appreciating i, I maybe people are might beginning at the the podcast here just saying okay i think we've gone over some of this stuff before but that's why we're going over it again because these things were declared safe it's really important that you are able to uh rhetorically use some of these very important observations that deanna has brought forward so i think we touched on this before but one of the things um that a pharmaceutical company will want to do is there's different levels of safety testing. So the most rigorous level of safety testing you can imagine is when you're enrolled into a clinical trial and they have a follow-up schedule. So for instance, they'll give you a drug, you'll come in, three months later you come in and they do extensive testing on you. They test your blood, they test your nervous system, they test, um, you know, whatever, whatever they anticipate this drug could have an impact on, they would rigorously test it. Um, and so that's called active uh, surveillance or active monitoring. Um, and there's solicited and unsolicited safety testing in a clinical trial. So solicited is where you come in, you sit down, and your doctor goes through a checklist of things. You know, have you had a cough? Have you had this? Have you had that? And then he does a physical check, and then he takes some blood work. Um, so these are all pre-prescribed things that they need to check for at a given time. So that's called solicited adverse event monitoring. It's like solicited safety monitoring. And then you have unsolicited monitoring. And unsolicited monitoring means um, basically that, that, you know, you sit down in the, the doctor's office um, and he basically says, how have you been feeling? And it's kind of an open-ended question, almost like a diary. And you can say, well, you know, I was I'm pretty good, but my energy was low and then it was high. And then this really weird thing happened. And so this is the opportunity for you to mention things that might not be anticipated as an adverse event, but might be picked up and, and recorded as a potential, potential unexpected adverse event. 
So what you would really want to do if you have a clinical trial, especially um, in pregnant women, is you would want to have extremely rigorous, uh, active, um, solicited adverse event monitoring. Um, because you really want to be closely looking to see if there's any impacts. And if there is any impacts, then what you want to do is you want to pull the plug um, and you basically want to halt the trial and uh, you'd go to a, an ethics review board and you'd say, you know, we are seeing these safety signals. What do you think? Should we pull this? And they would basically say yes or no, we should pull it based on whether they felt that the women and their unborn children were at risk. So that would be what would happen in a clinical trial environment. And what we would hope, I would hope, uh, for pregnant women would be this very active, very careful monitoring of both the mother and the unborn child to see if there is any untoward effects and to see if they're in distress. Now, the very, very lowest level of adverse event monitoring is what you call post-marketing surveillance. It's where you basically have no system for collecting um, adverse events. Um, People are people receive the drug. They're told perhaps that it's safe and effective, and so they're not even thinking that they should be looking for adverse events. They're sent home without any information as to how to report an adverse event or even what they should be looking about uh, looking at. So it's unsolicited adverse event reporting without any type of indication to the person that they should even be looking for an adverse event. So in that context. Um, there's a lot of confusion. Somebody's thinking that it's safe. And so their cognitive mindset is that it's safe. And therefore, if something un, uh, you know, unusual happens, they might not actually connect the dots between the fact that they've received that shot and uh, something happening. So in pharmacovigilance, basically, they just say, you know, if you see something, which is unsolicited adverse event reporting, um, you know, let us know. So that would be probably a proper pharmacoeconomic thing, uh, pharmacovigilance program. But what I think might have even been happening with uh, with COVID is that they're told it's safe and effective. You're safe now. Go home and enjoy your life. Go, you know, you're going to be able to visit your friends now. And, you know, you're not going to be a source of infection for everybody. And so they weren't even thinking that there was an adverse event. So this particular set of data is in people who it's the, the absolute lowest level of safety monitoring. So if you detect a safety signal in this low, low level of safety monitoring, you can imagine that the problem is manifold higher um, because people weren't even in the process of even thinking about it. Uh, and so this particular data set was collected in February 28th, 2021. Uh, and one of the things that they identified right out of the gate is that there was missing information on the use of these products, these mRNA products in pregnant and lactating women. Um, and that was that was identified in February as a, a lack of data. Um, and of course, there's a lack of active uh, solicited adverse event data because they didn't do any clinical trials. And so here we have this lowest level of monitoring that was done. And here they basically say there's a lack of data. So we should not be in a position to be able to claim safety because there's no data. So this just confirms the fact that um, there wasn't sufficient data to reassure women of its safety. Now, Mike, I heard you say about to say something. Do you want to jump in here? I just wanted to say that these are the two slides I think we ended off with the last time. So I think the yeah. next slide is where we were already um, talking about how um, they declared safety while having this missing information 
Um, and we had, we had gone through this slide that from the 270 pregnancies, as you've got up here yeah. right now, there were 23 spontaneous abortions and, and, uh, yeah, all of this type of stuff. Um, it's interesting as you, as you, as you're going through it again, Deanna, um, I just, I couldn't help. I, I again, I couldn't help, but think about how, uh, in Ontario, I think there was an added level that because the government was involved, even with reporting adverse events. Now this is, this is of course one particular, um, uh, report on adverse events and, and this is what they're coming up. So you're, you're saying that it's the lowest threshold, like it's the lowest safety threshold possible. And then we're going through the actual 28 neonatal deaths, um, previous vaccines pulled from the market at 15, uh, under probably other much more rigorous circumstances. But I also believe that within Ontario and, and in other provinces, the, the reporting on adverse, not only were people told it's safe, so then they're not going to look for it, but there was a level of, um, monitoring by the provincial health units that would also arbitrarily jump in and say, no, yeah, that can be reported as an adverse reaction and that can't be reported as an adverse reaction. Like there was a, there was That's more governmental screening. involvement. Yeah. yeah, there was more medical screening. So I'm just bringing that up that even within you, we, you're talking about one specific report and that's important. So we don't want to skew things, but that's how hard it is to get data on this, that well, other reporting methods were actually screened. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is the reassurance that our federal government gave us that they were monitoring safety for these vaccines. And so, you know, <laughs> there's different levels of monitoring, right? You would want for pregnant women and lactating women, rigorous monitoring of women where they're in a doctor's office and they're being, you know, carefully monitored and that there's a, a careful system for collecting, analyzing um, that data, that that data is being reviewed by people who have expertise in that particular area, that the demographics of the people who are being screened are being considered, right? But what we have in, in Canada is the absolute lowest level of safety monitoring because it's pharmacovigilance. It's similar to this particular type of safety monitoring where there is no clinical experts carefully reviewing uh, individual Canadians um, outcomes and individual Canadians are told when they leave the pharmacy potentially that something is safe and effective and they're not even thinking that they need to be looking for adverse events and if, even if they did have an adverse event they'd say to themselves well where would I go with it do I talk to my doctor by the time you get a, a doctor's appointment and you report it to the doctor, then the doctor basically says, oh my goodness, my college told me that if I do anything against the narrative, you know, prescribe exemptions for masks, exemptions for vaccines, uh, if I report adverse event reactions, which will go against the narrative that the vaccines are safe and effective, you know, I might be disciplined by my college, they might think twice about actually submitting that report. And then when they do submit that report, basically, you know, this is my understanding, and I have yet to confirm it. CEPI um, is basically, you know, one of the pandemic non-for-profit organizations that promote vaccination. They have a short list of the acceptable side effects 
that could be associated with the vaccine. And then basically, if something is not on that side effects profile, which would be a solicited type of adverse event reporting, then they would basically not, you know, the person who reported it would be informed that it was not actually an adverse event reaction. So what they're doing is this kind of weird hybrid of solicited and unsolicited adverse event reporting. So solicited would be when you're in the doctor's office and you go through the check and then you do unsolicited adverse event reporting, which is to identify those adverse events that might not be expected. Um, but what they were doing is, I believe, based on some preliminary data that I've seen, they were screening adverse events and basically categorizing them as related or unrelated, um, you know, at the federal level or at some sort of mid-level so that only those adverse events that kind of fell into a tidy pile that they expected were what's reported. So the federal government, I believe, did this very, very low level of screening a very, very low level of adverse event monitoring, and then they screened out things that they didn't think were appropriate. Uh, so then that means that the federal level of monitoring is even lower, and Canadians should not accept this level of monitoring for an mRNA product that falls into the category of a biologic or even a gene therapy, because the type of adverse events that are associated with those types of products can be unexpected, diverse, delayed, um, and they haven't been fully characterized. We don't even know really what to expect because it's so new. Um, so the fact that they were screening out adverse events or could have been screening out adverse events, or even that they were accepting such a low level of safety monitoring for healthy Canadians, especially pregnant women and, and unborn children is, I don't even know what to say. It's outrageous. It's outrageous that they would then turn around and say that that is appropriate safety monitoring. And I really um, Sometimes think that- I wish when you were on and you used words like outrageous, your kind body could reflect outrage. Like <laughs> we're taught, like it, it's both of us, we, whenever we're on, we, we struggle with like almost what we're saying and 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 here you are you have the lowest level of testing that your that your personal doctor could just say no not going to report it your regional health unit i i cannot remember i was trying to google it there was there was there was one uh individual within regional health units that had the had the ability to screen the reports nope um th this is this is criminal behavior while the government is partnered with the pharmaceutical companies lying to people like this is just propaganda and criminal behavior. And uh, I know it's, I, you know, okay, let's walk through this slide. I'm not going to interrupt you too much more. Uh, let's let's walk through this slide. So you can just remind people of these things. And then we're oh, just where we left off still. Deanna. We're going to make some progress, but I think we went over some really important understanding about the different levels of safety testing. Um, and so they can even say, oh, it was tested. But we as as educated consumers need to say, well, what kind of testing was it? Was it rigorous testing um, that included solicited and unsolicited adverse event reporting uh, overseen by a clinical specialist? Uh, that extended over time sufficient to the point of being able to assure long-term safety. And unless they can prove, when you use the word prove, that means that 
that means you've done all this testing. Unless they can prove long-term safety, then you should never take a product. Uh, and so if your audience can actually learn those terms, proven means proven after rigorous testing. That's what that word means. And long-term safety means over time. And, you know, whenever you're talking about unborn children, that over time should be, you know, well into adulthood. Uh, and then again, somebody will turn around and say, well, you can't do that type of long-term testing. And then if you say, well, if you can't do that type of long-term testing, then this product isn't for me. Um, and so, you know, becoming an educated consumer, uh, I think is very, very, very important. And especially knowing that the doctors are under the control of the, their regulatory bodies and that uh, going against public health narratives, um, which are, are being driven in large part by pharmaceutical companies that have been able, enabled by our, our federal government, um, they're, they're being told that if they go against the narrative that they'll be deemed unprofessional and that they'll be subject to discipline. And there are a number of doctors that are under discipline presently for speaking out and telling the truth about vaccine safety and, and the lack of rigorous safety testing. Um, and the fact that the our public health authorities are now in the position of declaring um, efficacy, declaring safety in the absence of appropriate data. So this is a very, very important thing to do. And, and I would probably question, um, you know, the first question, and in fact, we've developed a guide at the CCCA, the first question should be to your doctor, you know, are you being compelled to uh, promote one type of information over another? Are you free to give me counsel? Which is another way of saying, is there anybody else in the room it, with us right now that would impede my ability to have informed consent, which is basically the full set of, of information around the product that I'm, I'm being asked to take? So those are really important questions. And I think especially so for expectant parents, given the trajectory that we have of public health being able to declare safety and efficacy in the absence of appropriate testing in pregnant and lactating women. So I just want to touch base on this slide just really quickly because, um, you know, we did, we did go over this before. So there were some very brave mothers who, in the absence of all types of support, you know, they figured out a way to report these adverse events potentially to their doctor, potentially directly to the pharmaceutical company. And they were recorded by the pharmaceutical company as it's required based on the, the conditions of their approval. And of women who potentially were told that these products were safe, they lost their babies uh, shortly thereafter and then took it upon themselves to find a way to report that adverse event that they suspected was, a, uh, was associated with this vaccine and to record it in this file. And so this is just the first three months of data of brave women who found the way, their way, who were able to report these adverse events. And what you see was that between fetal and neonatal deaths, there were 28. Now, death <laughs> is the worst safety. Like if you get one death or you get two deaths, you should be raising the alarm bells because of course, that is the worst possible outcome. That is the worst safety signal possible or the most concerning safety signal possible. So in the first three months of rollout, and, and this is in women worldwide who are receiving <clears throat> this agent, 28 of them found a way to report their the loss of their children, their unborn children or their newborn children. 
And this was recorded and reported to the pharmaceutical company, but held outside of public purview. We only actually got access to this because of a, a court case. So they weren't being transparent. And our agencies knew of this information as they were declaring this safety. So, you know, they were saying safety in the absence of testing or declaration, but here we have evidence that this was not safe because if you have this lowest level of monitoring and this great concerning adverse event indicator of safety, safety signal or of harm, of potential harm, this should have stopped the trial right away. This should have rolled back those, uh, the use of those um, agents in pregnant women right away. Um, and in fact, historically speaking, for just a serious adverse event of, you know, of a digestive disorder, um, 15, uh, just 15 digestive disorders associated with a prior vaccine caused that vaccine to be pulled from the market. And here we have death, which is, of course, magnitudes of concerning, you know, harm more. Um, and and it, yet the, our agencies, and this was in February that they knew this, in April declared them safe. So, you know, that is a breach of trust in our agencies. Now, we're going to just talk about this Anna, type of, yes. I, I hate to stop us, but I have to. Can you go back to a slide? Because you, you've taught me a number of things. And one of the things you've taught me is that when I see numbers, they have to be truly comparative. So do we know how many women were observed for how long when those previously pulled vaccines were pulled at 15? So they, they weren't... I don't, we've never vaccinated pregnant women. So those vaccines were pulled whenever they were given to non-pregnant women, first of all. So that's an important distinction. Okay. Um, and I have no idea how long it took them to find those 15. I think it might've been years again, potentially because vaccines are usually put on the market with very, very little safety testing, rigorous safety testing. I have to qualify that because you could have minimal safety testing think, and then you can have rigorous safety testing. And it is the norm that vaccines are put on a market with very with minimal safety testing in the sense of a short time frame and I think not I'm, very I'm, careful observation. I, I think I'm the, the point I'm trying to get at is I wonder if that is after observing a thousand women, they were pulled after 15 uh, episodes, uh, adverse reactions, um, adverse events. Uh, were they, was it 10,000 women? I, I think the only reason why I'm saying that is like 28 out of 270 is more than 10%. That mm -hmm. is an astronomical number. And so I, I, I would, I would venture and it would be interesting you, when you come back on the next time, maybe you can answer this, that, that 15 adverse reactions was probably after monitoring women that were in a, in a much like the, the, the percentage is actually probably quite lower. That's what I'm, get, I'm wondering. Yeah. So it, I think what you're trying to do is establish a rate. So, you know, number of doses delivered to number of adverse events reported or number of deaths reported, but that's actually very, very difficult to do because we don't actually know how many doses were delivered. We just know that it was delivered worldwide in three months. So it's probably a very large number, but we also know that, it's, it was almost impossible for these women to report their adverse events, right? So they've got, right. <laughs> they were told that it was safe. You know, their doctors were told that they're not to report the adverse events. 
But some, you know, some way, somehow, these brave women figured out a way to report these adverse events. So we know that it is magnitudes likely of higher in terms of the actual outcomes. But even if that was the case, 28 is too much, right? 28 is too much, whether it's worldwide or not. You, you, you do not accept this. Or you halt it and you basically say, this is a safety signal. We need to do a randomized controlled trial in women to make, make sure that this is safe because the precautionary principle is the principle that should rule all delivery of medicine, but especially in pregnant women. And the precautionary principle says, if you are not 100% sure that this is safe, then you do not deliver it. You do not give it to people. You do not give it to, to, to healthy adults. You don't deliver it to, to you know, sick people. And you definitely, definitely don't deliver it to pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Um, just because of the delicate nature of the unborn child or the, the newborn and all of the, the impacts that these very strong medications can have on their, their physiology. Yeah. So again, what they try and do is they're going to try and minimize the safety signal that if you want to sell a product, you maximize the benefits and you minimize the safety. So basically what they'll say is, oh, there were thousands and thousands of doses worldwide and only 270 women reported, you know, an adverse event. So that's not very much. In fact, that's probably below baseline. That's probably normal. Um, but any type of comparison to what normal is cannot be done based on this type of trial. You have to have a randomized clinical trial to do that. So they cannot assert that this has been proven safe, even if they could argue that it's a low number of reported adverse events for the high number of doses delivered worldwide in the first three months. This type of safety monitoring is meant to detect unexpected adverse events uh, at very, very low levels and to trigger proper monitoring and or pulling the, the drug off of the market to protect people. And here we have 28 fetal and neonatal deaths and it was not pulled. And even more, their, our public health officials continue to assert safety um, and continue to encourage pregnant women calling them high risk as and and telling them that they needed to do this to keep their their unborn children safe. So it, it, it's extremely twisted. Um, and we need to be very, very careful of these declarations of safety, because now proving harm will only be able to be done in a randomized controlled trial. And we, the people, don't have the ability to design a randomized control trial because we don't we're not getting any type of economic um, incentive to be able to do that or there aren't any finances that have been put aside to do that and so our our government if they had been very very concerned about the safety of canadians would have been doing randomized controlled trials uh, where they could prove safety uh, but instead, what they were doing, similar to this type of study, is a pharmacovigilance study, which is the lowest, absolute lowest level of safety testing. And then they were also encouraging use in all sorts of sectors of society without careful monitoring, and especially in pregnancy. And that is very, very concerning. Um, and they're able to do it because they're able to say, well, it was approved by Health Canada. I, I just got a letter back recently of, uh, you know, some sort of uh, A-tips that we sent in, uh, and they're like, no, vaccines are always safe and effective. So they, you know, refer to vaccines in general, and then they, they say safe and effective rather than responding to the COVID-19 vaccine. And then they say, it's been approved by Health Canada, you know, and Health Canada only approves safe things, but they, you know, neglect to say that it was a special type of approval where it was able to be put on the market 
um, with minimal safety testing. And of course, then they say it's safe for everybody, even though it wasn't tested in, in pregnant women. Um, and so, you know, what we have here is um, inaccurate statements <laughs> from our government and our public health officials, which should be very concerning. Um, and I think basically go back to their feeling comfortable declaring things in the absence of testing and even in the absence of concrete safety signals that are, 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 are pointing away. Now, here's another safety signal now that what we looked at was the Pfizer pharmacovigilance data. So again, this is the VAERS. This is a safety system that was put in place um, by the CDC. And it again is the lowest level of monitoring. And it's really only ever designed to identify some unexpected adverse event that might cause, that might be, be reason to say, oh, something might be happening. We need to halt this and study it more carefully. And so here you have, you know, all of the adverse events that have been reported, these are <clears throat> miscarriages and stillbirths um, that have been reported in VAERS uh, from 1990 all the way to like 2019 to 2020. So, you know, a good long spectrum of, of data on miscarriages. And then all of a sudden we have the rollout of the vaccines where the CDC and Health Canada are recommending its use in um, pregnant women and boom, we go up to 3,500 miscarriages reported. And again, you have to remember who are these people reporting these adverse events? And these are women who were told you need to take this vaccine to protect your baby. They're given the vaccine. They're told that it's safe, right? A declaration of safety. They go home and then within two, you know, a few days or maybe a couple of weeks, they lose their baby and they're like, okay, well, is this just something that happened or is this something that is related to the vaccine? I don't really know, you know, that their next appointment, they might tell their midwife and they basically say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, it just happens. Uh, but again, both the clinician and the patient aren't actually realizing that miscarriage could be something that's associated with these vaccines. And our health officials knew this in February. And the fact that they weren't informing women that within the first three months of rollout, that 28, um, that there were 28 fetal or neonatal deaths, and then they were continuing to declare it safe and telling that women that it was safe, or even that they didn't, you know, upon review of this particular data in 2021, go on to say, well, there were 3,500 adverse events reported where people lost their babies. Uh, the fact that they continued even after this to, to declare it safe and that they continue even today to declare it safe is... Fraud. <laughs> what is that? It's probably fraud. fraud. It's lying. <laughs> it's lying at the highest level. Um, in a very concerning way. It's, it's disingenuous. It's, um, it's hiding very, very important data that uh, it's a complete breach, breach of trust and it's a complete breach of uh, informed consent. Informed consent means that you need to be told everything, both the risks and benefits of a product before you're given it. Uh, and the fact that they were hiding these risks is extremely concerning. So I just, I'm looking at the slide and it says the source is openvares.com. So again, Deanna, just very briefly, this is the same type of lowest level reporting that we're talking about. So this was not done by the pharmaceutical companies. 
in any respect as far as any type of rigorous testing. This is a reporting system in the United States. If I'm if I'm understand that correctly, I'm, you'll have to clarify yeah. whether it's international or United States, where um, the vaccine was rolled out, and women reported to their doctors. Their doctors inputted it into this system, and then this system has tracked um, what has happened. So just so, to repeat, this is very, is this, is this Canadian or is this an American number? This is an American uh, program that was set up and then is monitored and managed by the CDC. So that's the public health agency okay. of the, the U.S. public health agency. And again, it's, it's the lowest level of safety monitoring um, where there's. At any point, a doctor could say, nope, that actually wasn't an adverse reaction. I'm not going to report it at any time. Like, like, so this is. This is yeah. now, like you've said, the very incentivized women are, or their husbands being a part of it with them helping that, like, however it's happened, these are motivated people mm -hmm. to tell yeah. people this is vaccine injury. And specifically, this is reporting on stillbirths and miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is similar to the, the safety signal that, that Pfizer picked up. They actually basically said, you know, they should have said we, there's a concerning safety signal for pregnant and lactating women. But instead they said, oh, there's not enough information to say it's safe. Right. So that's a little bit of a twisty way of saying it. Right. We, we can't we can't say it's safe. Like they're basically saying you can't declare this safe because of the safety signal that we figured out. Right. But they said it in a different way. They basically said there's an absence of safety data. So they're trying right. to walk and a so, line. Right. Yeah. But and they so but just. Go ahead. Go back to the previous slide for one second, just really quick. Okay, hold on. This is where you access that information on October 23rd or, or um, this is February, and, right? 28. And this is February. So this is the very beginning of the vaccine rollout. They had this Before early they... on because like, if you go back to your slide right there, you have 2021 and 2022. Oh, if wait, sorry. I'm the, like, the, yeah, this is, so that was the very the first slide. indicator. Then this one is now all of 2021 and all of 2022. Um, right. And the, you can, you but can, in February of 2021, they yeah. had the numbers and then they knew, by they the knew end it. of 2021, mm -hmm. they still had these numbers and yeah. you can see that in 2022, obviously women are still getting vaccinated because there's a high reporting this is yeah like th this slide alone why why don't investigative journalists want to know about this slide again i don't need to rant go ahead we're, we're at this no. slide thank you i just wanted to follow the timeline yeah there. so so you're right so the timeline is important because we know that in february right they knew about the 28 fetal and neonatal deaths based on the Pfizer's pharmacovigilance. And this was given to our regulatory officials and our health officials. So they had access to so This is to given the to the American CDC and Although, this is given to Health Canada. Yeah, so that the Pfizer report that we just looked at was given to them, right? It's part of the, the disclosures that they have to make whenever they're asking to be uh, approved for, for use by people. And then we also have this vaccine adverse event data that even if they missed that early signal in February and then they declared it to be safe in April, by the end of 2021, this 3,500 deaths, which is completely out of the norm, 
right, is not normal, should have shut down this program, especially for pregnant women. So the fact that our government and our health officials and our public health officials continue to declare this safe after 2021 is outrageous. Um, and unfortunately, and this grieves me deeply, it means that there's been an incredible breach of trust that your public health officials are now no longer looking out for your best interests, but they're looking out for the interests of somebody else. There is somebody else in the room that is spurring them on to recommend products that are clearly failing all of the safety type testing, you know, that, that are, 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 that there are clear safety signals that should have shut something like this down long ago. The fact that they're ignoring them and pushing forward basically means that they're compromised and that they're no longer looking out for you and your, your, your child's best interest and that you need to become an active consumer. And now you need to be actively questioning, testing, figuring out who else is in the room with you and your healthcare provider to make sure that your baby remains protected. It's unfortunate. I really wish, I mean, I had gone through my pregnancy and was three pregnancies and, and felt a complete bond and trust with my midwife. But unfortunately now, due to the regulatory bodies and their pressure on our healthcare providers, our healthcare providers are no longer able to stand up and defend our, our health interests exclusively. The government is involved, pharmaceutical companies are involved, and they're putting pressure on our regulatory bodies or somebody is putting pressure on our regulatory bodies because now they're no longer able to look out for us and they're no longer able to identify these concerns and signal them to us. And you mentioned something around the media. I think it's really important that your audience know that, um, you know, that media and news used to be a public service that was financed through cable television. So they their bread and butter was cable television and that financed a news reporting and, and good investigative reporting whereby people were able to pursue the truth and report on it as a public service. Um, but as the media landscape has changed and you know cable television is no longer the bread and butter and there's all sorts of streaming services, our news outlets uh, lost their financing uh, and therefore news itself became uh, a business. And so if you're in a business and you need to sell headlines, then concerning headlines about COVID and COVID vaccine, you know, the, the COVID alarm, COVID alarmism in general or disease alarmism in general is a, is a fantastic means of obtaining revenue. If you can get excited every time there's a new variant, if you can, um, you know, report on, you know, the movement of cases around the world, this is, this is a newsroom's bread and butter now. Um, and if you have pharmaceutical companies that, or even um, money managers that have bought news outlets uh, and they're aligned internationally with pharmaceutical companies that are profiting from the sale of vaccines, then what you're going to get is uh, limitations on what our media outlets are going to be able to report on. And so, for instance, if your um, main uh, financing is now coming from Public Health Canada, right, Public Health, 
and, and also pharmaceutical companies, the chances of us hearing about anything that would go against the narrative that those two entities are promoting, which is that the vaccines are safe and effective, is just not going to reach us anymore. And I think that in addition to the fact that people not knowing that our public health system has been compromised and potentially other sectors of our head of healthcare have been compromised, we also don't understand that our media has been compromised and that they're no longer able to, based on the directions that they're being given uh, at higher levels, to give us the full truth. And in fact, that's not really their business anymore. Their business is to sell headlines and sell, selling headlines comes um, from raising fear and alarmism. That's a fantastic way to sell headlines and also pleasing your investors and the people who either have invested in you or, or people who are uh, your advertisers, which would be the pharmaceutical companies. So again, buyer beware of these dynamics that have occurred and these shifts that have occurred and, and a lot of them outside the eye of, of, of the public. A lot of people really aren't aware that investigative journalism is is pretty much, you know, eliminated. I mean, I've talked to VPs in media outlets and they basically say that they've let go of all of their investigative journalists. You have to go to Substack now and you can see all of them, uh, you know, writing their hearts out and trying to report on key stories that are just now no longer able to be surfaced. So an important move, everybody, is you're, you are going to move into the world of in, uh, investigative journalism being a crowdfunded type of thing, just like Liberty Coalition Canada is. You're going to move into podcasting where people get support from individuals who trust them and not just by, you know, turning on your TV uh, Deanna, I, I, we're off topic on this one. I, I want to, I want to just touch on it really briefly. Um, number one, as we've been talking about all of this, again, this is why the government having the monopoly on healthcare is terrible. If you are a good Canadian socialist and you think that showing up with your health card just means you get free healthcare, part of this podcast is to show you the dangers of when the government gets to monopolize your health, uh, the health industry, and then coerce you to do what the government wants to do. So uh, competition in all areas is good. And then that morphs into the media conversation where if a government is propping up one media station, then that media station becomes compromised. But if there's a free market, so let's say uh, James Pugh, uh, investigative researcher, Barbara Kay, um, uh, Deanna McLeod's not a re an investigative researcher. She's just a researcher. They run their own businesses and people decide we trust them because of what they say. So they support them. The government should not be giving arbitrary money to their favored news outlets. That That is just simply um, compromising the truth. So everybody, free market small government. Um, and one last thing before we move on to the next slide, Deanna, I just want to remind everybody, if you go back to uh, the part three, um, part three, by the way, Deanna, of our last conversation has over 3000 views. It's growing in views. Go to part mm -hmm. three and part four are on agile regulations. Deanna walks us through exactly how Health Canada has been turned down this way. 
instead of being a defender, it's been turned on itself. And she gives a lot of really clear visualizations on that. So go back and listen to those ones. That's what I was kind of looking up as you were talking there at the end there, Deanna. It, it's part three and part four. Very important episodes. So let's yeah, go to we, the next we slide. Need to, yeah, let's get going here. So um, what we just looked at was a visualization of the VAERS data where you see that incredible spike uh, right after the mRNA vaccination rollout. So what we did was we looked at other pharmacovigilance databases. And again, uh, these are these are that lowest level of safety monitoring um, where you're you're looking for unexpected indicators of harm or safety signals. Um, and here at the time when we accessed this one, which was in October 2022, there were 5,055 miscarriages reported as being associated with the vaccine. So these, again, are very courageous parents who find a way to report those adverse events that they think were related to the vaccine. And they want to raise the alarm bell and indicate to public health officials that this could be concerning, right? We can't prove that it was associated but with, but the, the mom knows that after they took that vaccine that that, that baby died, right? So you know, they go to the, the wall, they make sure that that adverse event is reported. And you can see that there were 5,000 parents who, who were reporting this, you know, even if the system wasn't set up to ease reporting, and even if it wasn't careful monitoring, they still managed to get that information out there. And yet our public health officials to this day continue to say that these vaccines are safe and effective in pregnancy. So now we just went and looked at, and even, so, you know, a few. Deanna, just to clarify, that first one, that's the VAERS. That's the previous chart. Yep. This is and the that US. is the total of 21, yep. 22. And yep. then so now we're moving. You've got, three, you've got three other places now that the observations are coming. Okay. You know, this one here is the World Health Organization's vaccine vigilance program. And you can see that you've got a similar amount. So I, you know, I would probably point to these two because they're, they're, they're well-resourced. One of the interesting things that was in the Pfizer report and that has just come out recently regarding VAERS is that they were actually not able to process all the adverse events because there were too many. Um, and they had a backlog of adverse events that they needed to process because they just didn't have the staff to be able to process this. That was the whole first paragraph or the first section of the, the Pfizer report, the first one that we looked at that basically said, we were completely overwhelmed with adverse events once we rolled out these vaccines. We didn't have the staff available to be able to report on these properly. And so we basically only surfaced and processed the worst types of adverse events because we couldn't process the whole bit. And you actually see that you know in a recent report that there were similar complaints coming from the CDC where their systems just were overloaded with adverse events reporting, right? And theirs and VigiAccess, which is the World Health Organization, would be the, the two agencies that are best positioned to be able to process a high volume of adverse events. And you can see that in both of those agencies, uh, you know, upwards of, of 5,000 adverse events were reported. And again, with the World Health Organization, that's globally, so then one might say for all the vaccines that were delivered globally, that might not be uh, very many, but who knows how to report to Vigi Access, right? Like what, mo what mom who's just lost their baby in Canada would ever report to Vigi Access? She would probably go, I don't know what happened, or maybe it was just bad luck or, 
Maybe it was the sushi I ate yesterday. You know, there's all sorts of questions. She might have had a chance of reporting it to her doctor in Canada, who would probably have reported it to our vigilance system. But the chances of anything ever getting reported to who are very low. And so, again, the fact that 5,959 women or expecting parents figured out how to do it is is commendable. And the fact that there's even more than three is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who's asleep at the switch here. But anyway, um, let's just go to... No one's asleep at the switch. That we, I, I know that I'm trying... I know that I'm being clearer with my language, but this is... This is a world, you got to remember, this is a worldview shift. As the world becomes more immoral, people will just do what they want. They will, as as we've seen in the book of Judges, people will just do what they see fit in their own eyes. So the nobody's asleep. Everybody's awake. And for the person who says, I don't, I, I'm not looking up and I'm not looking down, I'm just doing my job, they themselves are motivated just by their own job, their own greed. Um Thank you, Deanna. Keep going. So then, of course, the moment that you see an indication of potential harm, like we have in that very low, low level of safety monitoring, then you basically say, okay, so let's go and try and find another data set um, that we can look at to see if, if it confirms what we're seeing there. I mean, my preference would have been to stop the shots right away and get into proper testing to make sure that they're safe before you give it to anybody else. But of course, that wouldn't be good um, in terms of the pharmaceutical companies in the sense that they would lose profits. And of course, public health agencies would have to lose face, um, accepting that they not only would they have to something. lose face, they would face they would face lawsuits all over the place, which they are, but yes, this is totally not motivated in order to yep. do what you just said. Right. So then what we want to look at is another way of looking at safety is through population statistics. So basically what that is, is it's where you look at, um, you know, a given population. In this case, we're looking at Scotland and we look at historical levels of neonatal deaths Right. And so that's what this is plotting here. So the black line is deaths per 1000 live births. Right. So you can't look at the the at deaths of babies in the absence of understanding how many women were pregnant. So you do a, usually look at a ratio of deaths per live, live births. Right. And you can see that there's you know, it goes up and down, up and down. But like the scale here is one, two, three deaths, live births, deaths, live births kind of goes up and down, up and down. So it's not unusual that you would have, um, you know, up in, in, a, in a normal population, you have some sort of flow and that there is some sort of background, right? So this is our baseline up until the time whenever we roll out the shots. And the reason why we're looking at Scotland is because Canadian data, there's a, a pause, the reporting of, of deaths per live births is incredibly delayed in Canada. It, it generally is, you know, maybe a year to two years sometimes to get, you know, population level data that's collected in a reliable way. Um, and when I say in a reliable way, like for instance, if we if we're relying on ten provinces to collect data, 
um, and one of the provinces is late, then we can't actually use the collective data until all of the data is in. And then we can look at it historically, because if a province is missing, then, of course, it might look like the rates are lower, but it is just because all the data hasn't come in. So you really have to wait till all the data comes in and that you have accurate reporting before you can actually interpret a population level data. And because Scotland um, is one of the countries where they had very you know, close to real time reporting and it had accurate statistics, um, you know, this is something that we pulled from the heart group uh, and they, they had analyzed basically the number of neonatal deaths, fetal and neonatal deaths um, after each vaccine. So here's the uptake of the vaccine that they had in Scotland. So the first dose didn't seem to cause a, a breakout from the, the background, you know, baseline statistics. Um, but then with the second dose, all of a sudden you see the second dose, the uptake is higher here. And then you see a spike right afterwards. So in time, you can see the spike in, in neonatal deaths. And that is definitely outside of the range of what would be expected previously. And again, this is per 1,000 births. So five out of 1,000 births was then, you know, that's higher than maybe the background, which might have been maybe three out of 5,000 births. So that's definitely an uptick. It's hard to say how much of an uptick that is. Again, we're just looking at population level data, which is, again, a very, very poor way of monitoring safety. And when you're looking at deaths, that's like the worst thing. You, you, you really want to be, if you want to prevent harm, what you should be looking at is fetal heart rates right after vaccination to see if it's causing distress on the child right? We have means of, of indicating harm and so that you catch the harm at a very low level. But here, because of this negligence and monitoring, we're looking at actual loss of life as our measure of harm. Um, and the fact that there's even a little bit of an uptick should again be something that would have been reason to shut down this vaccination program. And at D3, so this is the third dose, you see it here, and then you also see another spike. So what that tells me is that there's a temporal association between population-wide uptake in the vaccine and an increase in neonatal deaths. And this should be another indicator of harm that should stop the program and basically say, now we have evidence of harm, we have indicators of harm, so we should stop and go back and do the proper testing on these vaccines because clearly that declaration of safety in the absence of any data is not proving to be true. But again, um, we can't, this isn't sufficient level of data to prove harm. It is only to indicate that there's potential harm. Uh, and that should cause them because they didn't do the proof of safety that should have caused them to shut down the program again. But again, now, because they allowed these vaccines to go onto the market in the absence of a proof of safety, now the only time that they're going to remove them or move from their statement or their declaration of safety is if somebody proves harm, meaning somebody other than the government and the pharmaceutical companies runs a, pharma, a phase three randomized controlled trial that allows you to prove the association. So and and the likelihood of that last thing happening is extremely low because there's no financing for it. And the pharmaceutical companies and the federal government know that that's the case, right? Outside of public funding 
and outside of pharma funding, there is nobody that's going to be able to finance a phase three trial that's large enough to prove harm. So basically what this means is that these guys have a free pass until that happens and that will never happen because there's no financing. Therefore, these unsafe products will probably continue on even though there's clear indicators of harm. And that is the downside of how this all works. Okay, so rise in newborn deaths, the second half of 2021. Again, this is in Scotland. So um, this is 2022. And you can see that there's, you know, it's pretty messy. If you look from one year to the next, you know, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of noise here. But here you have, um, a, a drop in, oh my goodness, I haven't looked at this in a while. Death second half of 2021. Okay, let's look at 2021. So right here. So you've got, yeah, so here you go, you've got background noise, and then you've got an increase in death in 2021. That's well above the norm here. So as the time rolls out, you've got, and this is, you know, 0 0.35, 0 0.40. So it's low, but you've got a, a breakout. So you have, you've got this here, and then you've got all of a sudden, uh, a higher level relative to the background um, towards the end of 2021. And again, towards the end of 2021 is when we know that there was that really big push, in fact, the mandating of vaccines, even in pregnant and lactating women. Um, and so you had incredibly high uptake. And in, and in response, what you have is this, this, this breakout from the background noise from other years of, of increased mortality. Now this is less than one year. So neonatal deaths is kind of right at that. And this is deaths up into one year of mortality. So this is slightly different, but again, it's all indicating that there is some concerning indicators. Now I'm just going to pause right here. The other side is going to argue that they didn't see this data, but they didn't see it because they don't have it. So those are two different things. What you should be saying is statements around safety with data, supported by data. But if you don't have any data, you can't actually declare safety. But that's what their position is. We haven't seen anything that proves that it's harmful. Therefore, it isn't harmful. So that's really uh, concerning, even because we would expect and we're expecting our health officials to basically say, you rigorously tested this and you're ensuring me that it's safe. And they're basically saying, I declared it to be safe and I haven't seen anything to prove that it is unsafe. Those are two very different things. I just want to jump to the And I'm completely product. motivated not to have seen any of those things. Like that, <laughs> go, right. going to your statement as you, as, as you were just talking about that, I'm so glad you brought up the point about it's not going to be pulled off the shelf as unsafe until someone proves it, but no one's going to do that because there's no incentive. It's the mm -hmm. same. It, it's like, it's literally the same situation that we were talking about, about independent, independent journalism. If the federal government uh, was not paying the CBC $1.5 billion a year, or let's say the federal government was just shooting everybody that scads of money like that, they're, they're, there'd be an opposition like the this is a one-sided this is a rigged house and 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 i'm glad you brought up that point because i was thinking the exact same thing i'm thinking deanna no one's going to prove it unsafe because there's mm -hmm. no incentive to prove it unsafe oh so you do all of this study and then a drug gets pulled off the shelf and that drug can't be sold nobody makes any money 
there's the, the only reason why you would do that is if you were an ethical third party, supposed to be the federal government, who was funded by the taxes of the people to protect the people. So once that once Health Canada has been compromised, the dominoes are done. Like the, the it's like you know my wife and my daughter and I were playing dominoes the other day, and by accident, and and well, I'll say by accident for me, by accident I I hit one of the dominoes, and it's just brum, and it's done. And both of the ladies looked up at me and said, "Seriously, like we're trying to build a really long thing here." The you know the the federal government knowingly just ticked the first domino. And it's it's done because there's nobody going to pull this off the shelf. So I'm so glad you're with us giving us this information, Deanna, because we have to just keep sharing this out. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's and our responsibility for, to do it. For pregnant and lactating women. And, you know, I'm just going to bring this up because I think that you would really appreciate this. Um, you know, there historically for the last number of decades, we've undervalued as a society unwanted pregnancies. Um, so we've allowed in our minds, the distinction, you know, humans, unborn humans that are wanted are valuable, right? And unwanted humans that are not wanted are not valuable. Um, the valued ones go in one side of a hospital and they're treated with care. They're carefully monitored. They're given the best practice, you know, the best medical treatment. Uh, if one of those unborn children that are valued are born early, then we go to great lengths to save their life. And we have amazing teams of specialists who can make sure that they live after 20 weeks, for instance, right? It's a viable pregnancy. Uh, and we've done amazingly at, at saving those lives. But as a society, we've allowed a category of human to be created that is not valued um, and therefore not subject to any of the normal protections or societal um, striving to ensure that their life is maintained um, and protected. So it can't be a surprise. I I, kind of want to just finish. I I, kind of want to finish the way that you were leading up to that. And I think you changed your thought pattern. They go in one side of the hospital and we go out great lengths to save their life. And then the unwanted ones go in the other side of the hospital where we literally chop them up in the mother's womb and vacuum them out and throw them in boxes or trash cans and kill them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not so, so I, I, like, think about so that, folks, as Deanna has explained this, that. In one side of the hospital, life. In the other side of the hospital, death. Go ahead. But I think I think the concerning thing, and, and maybe we didn't see it coming, is that then allows us to create groups of people that are either valued or not valued. And up until now, the value distinction has laid down to the mother. If the mother values the child, then we align with her and we protect that child. If the mother doesn't value the child, then we as a society allow her to dispose of that child, right? So, but the problem with that is that allows for a group, in this case, we've said it is the appropriate for the mother to say that something's unwanted, 
But what if now, but that leaves it open for another group to then start to make distinctions about what's valued and what's not valued, what can be aligned with and what can't be aligned with, what we will protect and what we won't protect. And what if all of a sudden the government decides to step into the role of what's valued and what's not valued. And they would say something along the lines of us looking good in a pandemic is of greater value, right? Then, then, then not. Therefore, anything that gets in the way of us looking good in this pandemic is then now undervalued. And therefore the protection of the state is withheld from that group, right? And so we can't be surprised once we've opened up this discussion of value in human life for a greater person, another voice to come into the space and say something is valued and not valued. And now here we have wanted pregnancies that are now no longer valued and protected by the state. And so now we might say, hey, wait a second, what the heck? You know, that was a valued pregnancy for me as an individual, but now the state might not agree with you. And therefore, there's all these groups of, of life now, including some of these pregnancies, where it's of greater value to the state to, know, to ignore these deaths, um, even if they were wanted pregnancies, even if the expectant parents wanted them, because we've opened up this uh, ability to make value distinctions around life. So I think it's really Deanna, important. The connection you just made is gold. And we're actually seeing this coming up in March in 2024 with the expansion of made assisted death. We are seeing this exact category happen at the end of life or anybody who declares them suffering themselves suffering. What you, the connection you have just made the folks listening, you keep like rewind that and listen to Deanna explain that three times and then go out and say exactly what she just said to the world, because that is such an important thing. Uh, and I want to just add, Deanna, it doesn't always have to be a spoken, open, honest declaration of unwanted. Mm -hmm. So the mother can go, oh, I wanted that pregnancy. I didn't take it in the backside of the hospital to have it chopped up. I actually took that one in in order to birth that child. I wanted that pregnancy. The government's not obligated to go. Well, actually, to be super duper honest, like I'm a clerk and I just I get paid eighty thousand dollars a year and I just don't I don't value that pregnancy and or I'm a doctor and I get three hundred thousand dollars a year. Like it's not like they're also being honest about that in the same way that, you know, uh, many women who abort their babies are not honest about their motives for doing such a thing. So. There, there's this lack of transparency that is there and then going to what you're saying and the massive number of groups now that get to quietly say, we don't really value that. And yet we're motivated by money or we're motivated by uh, medical care, uh, like being in the system is infinite. Cause you just mentioned the government and looking good uh, the government, not wanting to have uh, lawsuits Pharma not wanting to have lawsuits. Pharma not wanting to slow down. We've talked about all of this. There are so many competing voices to get to say who is value? valuable enough to keep alive. And mm -hmm. they're coming after our parents and they're coming after us because we're going to be everybody. If you're in your mid 40s or mid 50s, this is, we're 20 years from now, you're going to go into the hospital. They're going to look at your kids and say, uh, 
how's their inheritance? What do you want to do? Like how you how you want to how do you want to run this game? Like we're just at the start of this. Can you imagine? Like I'm going to be so terrified of orange juice when I'm 78 years old. Oh. <laughs> what have you done, Mike? Yeah, start pandering to your children right now. Um but anyways, I, yeah, I think right. it, give your I think kids it, all of your money now. So they're not motivated to kill you at the end, you know? Oh my goodness. But I think I'm, I'm just going to take us but back. This, this is, but you, that's just cool. Deanna, thank you for clarifying that and connecting that so articulately. I'm really thankful you did that because people can see that category. This is a category shift. It's a worldview shift and human life is no longer protected because God says he numbers the days because God says humans are valuable and that he will judge them. He, he will cause their, their living and cause their dying. No, they're, he's responsible for all that. No, people have stepped in and now you've got all of these little groups who just say, no, you're not valuable. That's really helpful. Go ahead. Yeah. And so I think that what, you know, again, being an, an educated consumer of healthcare now, we have to be on guard for these competing value statements or value propositions that are entering into our room, right? So for instance, you know, during COVID, the regulatory bodies basically said that physicians weren't able to give you their true opinion about something. So, you know, the regulatory bodies are being influenced by somebody. I haven't figured out who it is. I think there could have been pressure from public health or the federal government or somebody but then basically that meant that there were competing interests in the room with you and your physician, and they weren't free to give you the counsel that they normally are able to give you. Uh, so somebody basically then made a value statement about whether you deserve to get the truth or not. Uh, and you can't make a good decision in the absence of the appropriate data. So then they basically devalued you as an individual um, and your health and well-being, knowingly pushing a vaccine that hasn't been proven safe, knowing that you could, just like Russian roulette, be the person that gets that shot and has as those side effects. So again, this is a, a big wake-up call for people who have blindly trusted their healthcare providers. Um, and, you know, both in the sense of the the mechanistic manners in which the regulatory bodies are now calling some things professional and some things unprofessional, which is manipulating care. And also this shift in value about, you know, value distinctions around life and what life is worth protecting and what life isn't worth protecting is very concerning. And especially if they cloak it in a rights conversation, whereby we might blindly want to align with the people who have the right to do what they want with their bodies, but what we're really doing is we're unwittingly giving away the ability to define what is valuable and what, what life is valuable and what life is not valuable. And that is something that should concern all of us because now it will be the biggest, most powerful body that has control of the media that will be able to make those distinctions for us rather than us individually. So let's just look at what we're looking at right Speaking now. Speaking about those individuals, Deanna. Did you see our prime minister getting his uh, his booster with the T-shirt that says "Vaccine cause adults"? Bit back, <laughs> really? So, so now you have the prime minister of Canada name calling people who are doing any type of this research, saying you're childish. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm, I'm sure that's he's the type, well informed. Th that's the type of person that we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I think that yeah. that goes to a distinction that you really want to be discerning in who you ask for medical advice from. And so somebody who is an expert and somebody who is honest would be people that you would look to receive medical advice from. And then anybody else who might be doing it, um, you know, as a photo op or something like that, those are probably people that you don't want to look to, uh, to take medical advice from. So maybe I'll just leave it at that. But on that note, an excellent source of truth related to products because it's required by law is a product monograph. And so what we're looking at right now is the Pfizer product monograph for the mRNA vaccine, um, the mRNA product, I should say, um, because I don't think it really is a true vaccine in the traditional sense. And what you can do is you can look at these product monographs, they're available online, and they have to, by law, indicate all of the things um, that might be concerning around a product. And, and so that's really good because there's laws that require it. And so again, Comirnaty is the product that they've approved. Um, and if you actually look at, at the pharmaceutical companies, it's legally liable now because it's now market approved. Uh, what they'll say around pregnancy, if you look at the part of the product monograph around pregnancy, um, is that the available data on their product administered in pregnant women are insufficient to inform vaccine associated risks of pregnancy. So basically what they're saying is that there isn't enough safety data to be able to declare safety in the normal sense of the world of proven safety. So they're basically saying, nope, we don't have enough testing in pregnant women to be able to declare safety. And they are by law required to do that. Now, I wish that our public health officials and our federal government were as honest as the pharmaceutical companies. And that's a statement that I never thought I would say. Um, but there you go. The pharmaceutical companies, because they're legally liable for false claims, are not willing to say that this is safe in pregnancy. And yet our public health officials are. Uh, again, the same thing when it comes to lactation. It basically says data are not available to assess the effects of Comirnaty on the breastfed infant or milk production excretion. So they basically haven't done the testing to be able to declare that. So that is the extent to which Pfizer, who is profiting handsomely off of these products, is willing to make statements for pregnancy and lactation. And if they're the people who are most incentivized to make, you know, bold statements or to, to fudge safety aren't saying it, they're saying there's not enough data, then you know that that's probably what you should trust uh, rather than public health officials. But um, Mike, I, I do want to get into the results of a phase three trial because there was a phase three trial that was done in pregnancy in women between 18 years of age and older. And what I've pulled here is something called clinicaltrials.gov. So every trial that is conducted, um, for the most part, is asked slash required to register on this clinical trials database. And it should be the sum of all the trials that are occurring. So if you ever wanna know if they're studying something, we go into this all the time and we look to see what, you know, what, uh, what studies are ongoing, what questions are being asked, what's being studied. So in uh, February 15th, 2021, again, that's after Pfizer basically had the results of those first three months of pharmacovigilance testing where 28 fetal or neonatal deaths were recorded. 
right? After that, even knowing that they had those deaths, they launched a phase three trial, though it's a randomized control trial. The control is, is key because now we're going to be able to prove safety or prove harm, right? So we're all interested in this. Now, the fact that an ethics board approved this, given that those pharmacovigilance data were available is outrageous. They should have never done that, but they did it. And this trial went forward and a, an ethics board deemed it ethical for pregnant women to be enrolled in this trial and given an experimental product like the mRNA vaccine. Now, you know, we've had a lot of discussions within CCCA um, where there, where we're like, okay, so you shouldn't, it's unethical to experiment on women and enroll them in a randomized controlled trial, right? So then they basically don't do the randomized control trial, control trial and just give it to them, which is just outrageous. That should be worse, right? Um, but here it is. Uh, it is ethically questionable to have run a clinical trial with an experimental product, an MR, uh, mRNA product. But again, we're in this position where they've been declared safe and therefore we need to prove harm. Um, so this is our, our one chance of proving harm, of showing that this mRNA product might very well have caused those, the, the deaths to those, those unborn children. And so interestingly enough, again, this is just says that the regulatory, uh, officials gave Pfizer permission to run the trial, but in May, so let's say February, March, April, May, so four months later, they basically said we need to scale back enrollment as the vaccination of pregnant women becomes more common. So just think about that. So they basically said, great, go for it. There's a regular, there's a randomized trial, but oh, now we're actually just giving it to women. Therefore, it now becomes unethical to run the trial because women can just get it naturally. So then the regulators basically said, no, it's no longer ethical to run this clinical trial. You need to scale it back because the ethical thing to do is to give women the vaccine because now it's publicly available. So the only chance we had of proving harm, the regulators basically said, scale it back, we can't do it. And so basically the, the trial was stopped pretty much after four months. Um, and we'll look at the results of that trial. And the reason why I've brought us to the clinicaltrials.gov is because this, this study, which is very, very, very clinically relevant, um, has never been published. It's basically the results. Uh, in fact, we launched our campaign and about a month and a half later after our campaign was launched, suddenly the, the results of this trial showed up on clinicaltrials.gov. They haven't been published anywhere. And, you know, when, when results aren't published, they're not taken seriously. So the fact that these results will probably really never enter into, um, you know, clinical dialogue in the sense that doctors will never really know about it because it hasn't been published. Um, and, you know, regulators could probably continue to ignore it. But let's just take a look at the trial design. And I, I you know, I, I sometimes wonder whether I should go into this extent, but this is actually how you read a clinical trial. And I think that given the climate that we're in, it should, it's important that people understand how to, how to read a clinical trial and interpret a clinical trial, because there's so many ridiculously flawed trials out there that are claiming certain outcomes, um, but they're really not designed to support those types of conclusions. And so I think that the average consumer needs to be educated about the type of data that they're saying supports any given claim. But 
in this particular trial, I'm just going to highlight a few things. They enrolled healthy women, but they were between 24 and 34 weeks gestation. So again, we're concerned about early pregnancy and they're pushing this drug in early pregnancy. And yet the trial that they're designing, the, the ethics board would not allow early women, women in early stages of pregnancy to be enrolled in this trial because of the, the, the concern or the cause, the concern for harm. So whoever designed this trial basically did not get permission from their ethics review board to enroll early stage pregnancies, I'm imagining. And so therefore they were restricted to looking at late stage pregnancies. So the fact that an ethics review board did not allow this clinical trial team to enroll early stage pregnancies is a statement in and of itself. It is unethical to give this to early stage pregnancies. Um, now, of course, I don't, I don't have the proceedings of that Essex Review Board, but the absence of early stage pregnancies in this trial is pause for consideration. The other thing that is shockingly absent is that there's no factoring of natural acquired immunity in this, this trial. So if you're, if you're looking to argue that a vaccine will cause immunity, uh, the one confounding variable would be other sources of immunity. Natural acquired immunity is the standard, the gold standard for immunity. So if you're not factoring in and controlling for the influence of naturally acquired immunity, then your study is useless, would be, or uh, flawed beyond reason would be another way of saying it. And again, they're pushing this vaccine on pregnant women because they say that they're at risk of severe COVID-19. Therefore, the endpoint of this clinical trial, which would be the primary endpoint, should have been severe COVID-19 because they want to prove that it actually works. Uh, but instead, if you look at the primary endpoint, which is what this trial is designed to do, it is really just designed to look at adverse events and serious adverse events after the first and second dose. And then the only efficacy endpoint that they have is whether they have antibodies following the, the vaccine. But we'd actually, antibody titers are not a clinically validated indicator of severe COVID-19. And everybody in the community would acknowledge that just because you have antibodies does not mean that you're protected from severe COVID-19. Um, the types of trials that would need to be done to prove that those two things are, are related have not been done. So therefore, just because you have antibodies does not mean that you're protected from severe COVID-19. And there's no evidence to prove that, again, unless that's a declaration rather than something that's proven. And so the fact that they did not use severe COVID-19 as a clinical endpoint means that this trial, again, would have been severely flawed. So even if they had been able to complete it, which they weren't, um, we really wouldn't have been able to determine whether these things were beneficial in pregnant women. Uh, now, we do know that they were looking at safety and they had planned 4,000, which I would probably argue is not high enough to be able to, you know, not enough patients to be able to assess safety properly because we enrolled 20,000 for normal adults. So if we're looking at unborn children and pregnant moms, which are a higher risk group and a, a, a group that might be at more risk of safety issues, then I would have argued that maybe we should have had, you know, 30,000 people in this particular population to ensure safety, but the trial was designed for 4,000. And because it was stopped early, we have 324. 
324 women are not enough to be able to assert any type of safety. You might be able to see an indicator of harm, but again, we cannot prove harm and we cannot prove safety with a population size that big. Um, so again, we have to think about the rigor of testing. So there was no subclinical or prolonged monitoring. And I'm just gonna talk about clinical monitoring would be, how are you feeling? What happened? Did you have a cough? Did you have a fever after you got these shots? Um, subclinical would be you've got a fetal monitor on your baby and you take the shot and you monitor its heart rate for the thing. You monitor uh, the mother's blood for uh, markers for inflammation, markers for thrombosis, markers for cardiac damage because these are all the things that we know. So careful monitoring would have been subclinical, meaning where you test things, you know, above and beyond what's just clinically obvious. And you would have had prolonged monitoring because our concerns extend past just immediately following the shot into the first few years of life. But in fact, what you see here is that careful type of testing only lasted seven days. So they only did careful solicited adverse event monitoring for seven days and they didn't even do any subclinical testing. So again, what this would be is would be an absence of rigorous testing. So they would be able to say that they finished a randomized controlled trial and that it didn't show any greater harm, but really they didn't test them for very long. It was too short and it wasn't rigorous enough testing. They did allow them to fill out a diary entry up until two months uh, one month following the second dose. So they basically said, well, if something happens, just let us know. Good luck with that. Um, which again is not rigorous safety monitoring or careful safety monitoring. And if there was a serious adverse event that was reported, they would follow that adverse event up for six months um, after delivery. So again, that is not the type of careful safety testing that we would expect or need in order to be able to make statements around true safety. Um, and on top of everything else, there was increased reactions and COVID-like illness that were reported in those seven days afterwards. And so what that really means is that uh, people's arms really hurt. There was something obviously wrong, lots of redness, lots of swelling, lots of pain in their arm after the injection. So that would be an indicator of harm. Uh, and then the majority of women had COVID-like illness following the shots. And that's what this particular study reports. So if we're giving a vaccine to prevent COVID illness, causing COVID-like illness in the majority of women receiving the shot is ridiculous. And if we're saying that we're giving it to prevent severe illness, but then we don't actually test severe illness in the trial, then this trial basically is useless. Um, but again, it looks like they're going to try and make some safety statements around this trial, um, even though it's it's not sufficiently powered to be able to appropriately detect safety. Um, and then what was really interesting is they did blinded follow up for up to one month after delivery. So again, remember that controlled part. They only kept the control part for one month after delivery and then boop, they unblinded it and gave the women who uh, were on the control arm, the vaccine after one month. 
And then they followed them up for six months. So basically, if you're a pharmaceutical company who wants to make sure that you don't allow them to prove harm, then you have to get rid of that control group as fast as possible. And they actually wrote it into the trial design where they automatically get unblinded and the women on the experimental arm or the placebo arm get given the experiment, the vaccine, in order to be able to eliminate any potential for proving harm. So is this trial appropriately designed to answer the question that was on all of our minds, which is, are those safety signals real or are they not real? Are they an artifact? You know, were they by accident or, or is this thing actually causing harm? Well, this trial in the beginning wasn't even designed to answer that question. And then it was compromised by having it stopped early. And on a, in addition to that, when you look at the number of live births to the number of pregnancies that they record in their records, there's 13 unaccounted for babies. So they just lost track of 13 babies in the midst of their reporting. So again, can you trust the, the results of this trial? Can you trust the reporting and the rigor and the, the scientific rigor of this trial? I would say no. Um, and the fact that any type of you can make any type of statements around the benefits or risks of this vaccine when they lost track of 13 babies is another problem. So one thing we can conclude based on this is that it still has not been proven safe, even with the, conduct, the, the launch of this clinical trial. Um, again, it's been compromised and the public still does not have that proven safety data to feel confident in taking this mRNA product. Well, there you have it, everybody. Um, I, to summarize, Deanna, they didn't look at everybody they had th that they should have as far as scope. They had a small number. They didn't ask the right questions about anything. Their observation was extremely limited. You you said um, they were clinical, no no subclinical. Um, within that clinical, earlier on, we had talked about two ways of clinical one was just um one was just asking observational questions other 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 clinical research was asking direct questions do you remember uh yeah. giving the giving the clarity can you yeah. just give those terms again even so in the clinical solicited solicited adverse events is where you ask directed questions right and then unsolicited which would have been these two here or where they just say, you know, let us know if something happens. That's unsolicited adverse events reporting. So they're, they have a system for recording yeah, so that, but they don't prompt anybody. Yeah. And so then they go at the very end, they data dump. Occurred. Yeah. And then they just accidentally then they go and data lose, dump. lose data. <laughs> well, and then they intentionally write into the actual study, say we're going to lose the control. Like, mm -hmm. so it was by so design. folks just just put yourself just put yourself in the in the shoes of like you're a grade 11 science teacher and and a kid hands this in like now i know that it takes a, a comprehensive deanna has a comprehensive understanding of these things but even if she had have just displayed the data with the amount of like little instruction that i've received from her you could have extrapolated all of those different points. She, she, she would not have had to put it in red for us. We could have played the game, what's missing here? 
And we would have been able to walk through all of this now based upon just looking and, and being taught by Deanna how to, how to see flaws in a study. So yeah, no, this has not been proven safe at all, Deanna. And in fact, I'm, I'm not sure. Do you have another slide of actually what are the safety statements that they made? Yeah, let's take a look at them. Yeah. So, uh, so these are, I just pulled a few, um, because what I, I mean, they're going to conclude that it's safe. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, but I want to basically, warning. pardon? Sorry, trigger warning. They're just going to conclude it's safe. They're going to conclude it's safe. But again, it's safe in the absence of rigorous testing, right? But they basically can say something along the lines of, uh, from what we can tell, there's no indicator of harm, right? Which isn't the same as proven safety, because this isn't rigorous enough to prove safety. But I just want to show you um, that this is the, the vaccine arm here, and this is the placebo arm, and this is at birth, and this is congenital malformation. And again, they, my goodness, I don't know what's happening with that. So they really weren't looking, right? They didn't have sufficient power to be able to pr appropriately characterize safety. And yet, if you look at congenital malformation, which means your, your, your baby is born malformed, there's twice as many malformations on the vaccine arm as in the placebo arm two times. And this is the data that they reported, even though they're declaring it safe. And if I saw this, they're basically, they'll probably say, well, it was underpowered and we're really not sure if that's a true effect or not. The precautionary principle states that in the absence of proven safety, you should pull, you don't continue forward. So this could have been just a statistical anomaly, but what you should do is stop and study it carefully and then decide whether it was a statistical anomaly and only after it's been proven safe or proven not to be the case, then you move forward. So the fact that their very own poor data shows congenital malformation, we've been here with thalidomide, what are we doing continuing? This is, it's, it's absolutely outrageous. And here are something called adverse events of special interest, meaning that those are adverse events that they expect with this particular product um, and are concerning. An adverse effect by definition is something that's untoward that you don't want to have happen. And here you've got five adverse events being reported and again, low power and only one on the placebo group. Right? So even of the, special, the adverse events of special interest, there are still more on the placebo on the vaccine arm than on the placebo arm. So again, what are they doing moving forward with this? And the moment that this data was published on clinicaltrials.gov, this should have been sufficient to stop our vaccine rollout in pregnant women. And yet, you know, all of our, you know, I just checked with, you know, we've got a, an absolutely lovely midwife who's on our group um, at the CCCA. And, you know, she uh, sent a letter off to her, the educator of midwives, and basically said, you know, we take pride in understanding the evidence and being able to promote informed choice with our clients. 
And yet here we've got all these concerning data coming up. Why are we continuing to push these mRNA products in pregnant women? And her, the, the lead midwife, the educator in Ontario responded back saying, at various times, we have to defer to other authorities who have the ability to indicate how we should practice. And in this case, we need to defer to public health and follow their guidelines. And so what you have is you have this public health dominance on all of the other groups and all the other groups have to submit to this public health group, which I'm going to argue is severely compromised, severely compromised. Um, either that or incompetent. They either don't know how to read clinical data or they're compromised, but they are definitely not able to navigate the data in a way that's sufficient to be able to protect the Canadian public. And I'm remiss to be have to admit that, but I have no confidence in public health officials' ability to properly uh, interpret and collect the data in a manner that is able to protect Canadians. Um, well, we have been going for an hour and 47 minutes, Deanna. Darn it. We always do this. And I'm still not finished. <laughs> so I think we need to make uh, how, how many more slides do you think you have? I think we I'm might need to call this one on that very, very good finishing thought. Yeah, this is the end of the safety section. Um, I did want yeah. to go back and look at, you know, whether women were ever really at risk of, of severe outcomes for pregnancy. You know, they basically terrified women into saying that if they don't get the shot, um, you know, that they could have a severe COVID episode and that they could lose their babies. You know, that's what they're, they're terrifying moms with. And so I do, I do think that it's probably worth taking some time. And then of course, you know, this claim that they're saying that it can protect against severe outcomes is again, something that isn't substantiated. It was a declaration rather than um, something that was proven. So there's a little bit of information to get into there. I think, you know, anybody who finishes, you know, with this slide probably has everything that they know to resist um, these particular mRNA products, just based on the fact that they haven't been proven safe. Um, and the fact that there has been lots of um, misinformation, per, you know, being conveyed by our health, public health officials that should be a good pause for questioning whether they're for pregnant women or not, and their unborn children. Okay. And so I think we should end this one on that. And I know that here, there's two reasons why uh, for our listeners. Number one, you are going to come back on in a little while and we are going to talk about the public health numbers that you have. Right. And so let's, let's, let's dedicate that we can start off that section with um, the current information on pregnant women. Cause I think it is a very important question to answer. Were, were they even, were they even telling me the truth about the severity of what I faced? Um, but for now, I think we need to finish this one off. Everybody, you have this, this has been gold, Deanna and folks, I'm with Deanna. You have got to ask a lot of questions. What a profound question that the CCCA has uh, left us to ask our doctors. Are we the only two people in the room? Are, are you free 
to give me informed consent? Or is there someone else in the room compelling your speech? Mm-hmm. And that is, that, that's the takeaway from this. Are we the only two in the room or is somebody else in the room forcing you to give compelled speech? And all of these things add up to the fact that currently in the state uh, that we are in, you've got to find a doctor who's willing to say, yes, I, sorry, no, there's nobody in the room. And yes, I can give you my honest opinion on this and I will not defer because that's the way all of this has been happening. Everybody defers to somebody else and nobody takes responsibility. You've got to, you've got to ask your doctor the question, will you take responsibility to give me informed consent? And so with that being said, could I just add one last thing? Cause I, I just think that was an amazing summary. Um, I think the other question that you have to ask is, have you yourself looked at the data? Um, and the reason why Absolutely. the reason why I'm saying that, you know, and will you look at the data with me? Right. Can we go back to the data? Because um, the problem is that public health will set a guideline and then the doctors will be forced to follow that guideline. And sometimes there's just so much information that they're either not equipped to be able to interpret data or they just haven't had the time to interpret data. And then they've just de facto trust what the public health agencies are saying. So I think you, you both need to be finding somebody who isn't feeling compelled, like they know it's wrong and they're, and they're having to say it's right, right? But also who's taken the time to be informed themselves. And that is huge because I think, you know, and one of the things that I, I find regularly is that, you know, if I'm in a room and I crunch data all the time and I know how to interpret trials and I know how to look for pharma's twisting and I'm put in a room with a doctor who knows nothing about clinical trial data, everybody will defer to the, the doctor and say, well, he's a doctor, he should know. And I just really want to uh, impress upon your audience that not all doctors know how to read and interpret clinical trials and not all doctors have done their due diligence and actually looked at the data. So not only do you have to feel, find an honest doctor, but you have to have a doctor who has either looked it over and has a a well-formed opinion of it and who is capable of that or who is willing to have be guided through the data so that they can have an educated opinion. So those are two really important distinctions. And I think that they're both missing in this COVID era. Yes. I'm glad you added that second one. And I want to say, we've talked about brave and courageous women throughout this. Uh, We, you know, um, husbands are involved in this conversation. And so I want to say brave and, and courageous men and women who are advocates Um, If you go to your doctor and you say, are you, are you compelled to give me an answer? And he says, no, I'm, I'm fine. Have you done the research? And the answer is condescending. Like, come on, vaccines are safe. Just move on. 
which is what you're going to find. So again, Deanna soft sells things. She's very kind to the medical industry. So when she says not all doctors, the vast majority of doctors will not have looked in depth at what Deanna has just presented in any way. They make money, they see clients, they deal with pus, and they send you home with a prescription. If they are condescending to you, which they will be, you have to advocate for yourself and for your, for your children. And you have to say, Hey, look, uh, because they're going to say things like I actually on that last slide, right? This is coming off of a, of a website that's not been, um, peer reviewed. So they're going to say, well, that's not peer reviewed. Like there's a hundred reasons for them to ignore your request for them to do the hard work, but we're at that stage folks. And we're at that stage and you have to be an advocate. And if you have a medical professional who will not take the time, do not trust them. Just flat out, do not trust them. It, you know, you might feel like you're in a, a, a life and death situation and then you've got to take a risk. That, that's that's going to be your call. But if you've got a doctor who just, um, because of their title, and you want to know why I say that, Deanna? Because... I've got, I've got so many pastors who are doctors who don't know the Bible. I, there, mm -hmm. There's so many, like, we go and we get educated and we forget stuff and we live life and we're, none of us have God's omniscient knowledge. And so everybody has to be able to answer credibly and honestly. So uh, thank you for that second question. Is there anybody in the room compelling your speech and have you done the work yourself? Do not accept any other answer uh, don't accept any condescension when you ask those two questions. Go be a medical advocate for yourself. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening. Godspeed.